No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And in you. He is the bringer of life and joy. His grace is amazing. He fills us. He completes us. He is our all in all. One day we will be with Him forever and ever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. I think we have a number joining online today uh, due to recent events, so I, uh, the church sends its greetings uh, to you as well as uh, certainly for those here. Tony Campola tells the story when he was on the, the same speaking platform as Nobel Prize winner Bishop Desmond Tutu. And so while he was uh, there before the service, he writes... I was carrying on the small talk like, like uh, people do, and jokingly I asked the bishop why he wasn't a Baptist. <laughs> then uh, Bishop Tutu uh, explained that in the days of apartheid, uh, when a black person and a white person met on the street, the black person was expected to step off the sidewalk or off the footpath and allow the white person to pass. And in the process, they were to nod their head as a gesture of respect. One day, Tutu said, when he was just a little boy, his mother and he were walking down the street, and a tall white man dressed in a black suit came toward us. But before my mother and I could get off the sidewalk, he says... The white man did. And as my mother and I passed, he tipped his hat as a gesture of respect. I was more than surprised, he said. And I asked my mom, why did that white man do that? And my mother explained, he's an Anglican priest. He's a man of God. That's why he did it. And when she told me he was an Anglican priest, he said, it was at that moment that I decided there and then that I would be an Anglican priest. But far more than that, I decided that I would be a man of God. Now that brief story highlights four things that I want to examine today. Very complicated things. Submission, headship, Love and respect. And of course, given the time that we have uh, today, is, it's uh, limited. Our discussion is of necessity going to be partial. Uh, but suffice it to say that it was the actions of that man that entered into the heart of that young bishop-to-be Tutu and turned his life around because of respect, because of love, because the proper handling of what it meant to be in authority and what it meant to be submissive. Now, a lot of people get 
wrapped around the axle trying to ferret out the causality of these things. Well, if you want this person to be that, then you need to be this first. Well, okay, there's some truth to that, but we're thinking in some kind of sense that doesn't make sense. In this way that we're saying that one causes the other. That's not the kind of relationship that we're looking at here today. I mean, the only causal thing would be um, the love of Christ. But beyond that, when we look at something like this, we're looking at something that's more like oxygen, nitrogen, argon, and carbon dioxide. In other words, the air that you breathe. It is in its uh, connectedness, its interrelatedness, that gives us life. And in fact, while they may exist, they certainly do exist in isolation, it is when they are together that they create the air we breathe physically, but also the air we breathe relationally. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at 11 verses, or 22 through 33. In Ephesians chapter 5, The Apostle Paul is continuing on with the practical outworking of the Christian life. So in the first three chapters, he gave us all of these wonderful things that we have been given in Christ. And now he's saying, how do we live that out in the world? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish. The same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated uh, his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. As Franklin Covey argued in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, let's begin with the end in mind. And so, having said that, I want to start at the last verse, and and then go back to the To the first, verse 33. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And we're going to take those two in reverse order as well. So hopefully that's not all too confusing. It'll line up here. So let's look at respect first. So the dictionary says that respect is a feeling of deep admiration for someone or something that's elicited by their abilities, qualities, or achievements. And in this, uh, we also find another 
part of it that it's regard, uh, due regard to the feelings and the wishes and the rights and the traditions, the culture of others. And that term respect comes to us from Latin. The, the prefix re means more at, uh, to do over and again. So it, like you rebuild something, you reheat something, you rewrite something and so forth and so on. You, you get this. Uh, the second part comes from the, the Latin root spec, which means to see, to inspect to be a spectator, a couple, and I've used some of these before, so I thought, well, let me try something different. Same root, different sound. Auspicious, different pronunciation, but the same word. Suspicious, yes, indeed. Both have to do with looking. Uh, Just a little uh, different pronunciation is all. So when you put them together, what you have, what it means is, is to look again. To look again. Stated negatively, it means not to overlook. In modern parlance, in today's world, to respect someone might be said as do not render them invisible. In other words, they count. Their word counts. Their presence means something. And that's respect. Second, the term love. uh, It comes to us in English from this idea of to cherish. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful word to hold uh, dear, to hold something dearly, to cherish something with, with deep affection. Now, the biblical text, the biblical word in the text today has that notion. It has this notion of cherish. It has the notion also of affection, but it also deals with the outworking. Of that which is to regard the welfare of another. So it's not just, oh, I have feelings about something. It's to take those feelings and it's to put them in action in the real world. Now, biblical love adds a couple of other elements. One is that it is unconditional. And two, it's that it's sacrificial in that seeking the best for another. I need to... I'm going to qualify a number of things that I say because this, this, this passage is, is one of those kinds of passages where people already come to it with preconceived notions. And so we're going to try to uh, go through some of that because when I say unconditional love, I do not mean love that is without bounds uh, or without limits. That's not what unconditional love is. Unconditional love is is that I love you freely. Jesus Christ says, I love you freely, wholly, and completely. And the unconditional part is that he doesn't have any expectation in return. He has hope. He has desire. He has want. He desires you to come to him. But he does not expect it. If he expected it, he could simply make it so. No, he does it without expectation of repayment or even reciprocity. And while sacrificially, uh, that can mean the ultimate giving of our lives, and in some cases it does, 
But that's pretty rare. In the day-to-day living, sacrificial love is more like Philippians 2, 1 and 2. And that is to be a person who is regarding others. After, uh, I can tell you this, after literally thousands of hours of counseling couples, uh, couples who don't exercise the characteristics of respect and love are really frightened to adopt them. They don't want to do it. And I'll tell you why. It's because they've been burned. I'll tell you why. It's because through a social and cultural lens, the words, the very words uh, to submit, to love unconditionally, to respect, those, they've, they've been wrecked uh, as, as part of our language through these social and political lenses. Husbands and wives are afraid to do that because they might get left high and dry. Well, hey, if I do all of this and they don't reciprocate, I'm the one, I'm not a doormat, but that's what I become if I do this. Thank you very much, I will leave it alone. They believe, and when it's as defined by the world, uh, it can put you in a position where you're easily taken advantage of. And I've only mentioned briefly the notion of submission here. We're going to talk about that uh, right now. Many in the church, outside the church, almost totally, but even in the church, we have this notion that Ephesians 5.22, let me... Let me remind you of what that is. Wives, submit to your husbands uh, as uh, to the Lord. Uh, Many take that as a a hall pass for spouse neglect and abuse. I mean, how sad that we've come to such a place where such a beautiful sentiment in the Bible has been turned on its head to be something ugly. I mean, those notions that I've mentioned are completely foreign to, to biblical teaching. But it deeply, deeply illustrates how biblically illiterate as a nation we have become. We don't know what the Bible teaches as a nation and we don't know how to live it out. So having begun with the end in mind, let's see what we can do with this text. Without being conformed to the image of the world around us, but at the same time presenting the biblical case as it is. Verse 22, and I'll start right with that one. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I mean, in verse 24, he doubles down. He says, wives are to submit in everything to their husbands. Now, our society rejects this notion out of hand, completely, utterly, and entirely. And it's not a stretch. It is not a stretch to say that our society views any kind of submission language as dirty, as ugly, as Neanderthal, that's the favorite word that they throw around, not only that, but also misogynistic and inherently oppressive to women. Wow. That's the facts. You, You know this. This is not a mystery to you. But this is also not what the Bible teaches. Unfortunately, by the numbers, by the numbers, 
33% of women have been domestically abused at some point in their life. And research indicates that within the church, a full 18% are as well. Which means that there are many in the sound of my voice that have wrongfully suffered. And the sad part, let me tell you, this is sad by itself. For me, as someone who has dedicated his life to ministry, equally profoundly sad is that LifeWay conducted a survey of a thousand pastors, of whom, of which, 37% do not believe that spouse abuse happens in the context of the church. I, I hope that that made it clear what my position is. Beloved, that's just not so. I have never held that position, and I never will hold that position. Do you know why? Because we are sinners saved by grace. Sinners. Sinners do sinful things. We're not perfect people by any means. And sometimes things happen. What's worse than that even, and I realize this is... It's more about people in the ministry than it is other... When I say in the ministry, we're all in the ministry, but what I mean by that is people who have dedicated their lives to be leaders in the church. 10% of those believe, 10% Christian pastors believe this is a woman's fault. (laughs) Stop it. Stop it. As if... As if, even if the woman did egg somebody on, that that justifies it. Nonsense. Nonsense. Now, as you know, I hope you know, I always want to be uplifting. But at the same time, I want eyes wide open. Eyes wide open to what happens in society. So, What does submit here mean? Well, there are some clear things that it doesn't mean, and that's that's where I'll begin with with this word. First and foremost, it can't mean nothing. (laughs) Uh, Yet, that's exactly what our society says. It doesn't mean anything. Paul was off here. This is just first century patriarchy run amok. And we need to do what one of our former presidents said to do. Paul was wrong at this point, so we'll just, we won't listen to what he has to say. Or maybe the more, you know, thoughtful ones, instead of just throwing it out, they they respect the Bible, they believe that the Bible has something to say to them, so they'll say, well, verse 21 It's just, and you have to go back a verse, but we talked about that last week a little bit. Verse 21, if you're in your Bibles, you can look at that. That's just some sort of an overarching principle. Mutual submission. We're all to submit one to another in every area. And while generally that's true, it would render verses 22 to 24 senseless. Senseless. And the Spirit of God does not waste or mince words. 
to adopt those notions of the world that I've mentioned simply makes the passage incoherent. So we don't have the option of just saying, we will look this squarely in the face and move on. We don't have that option. Not if you believe the Bible is true. You have to do something with it. Now, if verse 21 is the only thing that matters, then we have wives submitting to husbands, okay? We have husbands submitting to wives, okay? But then we have children submitting to parents, okay? Parents submitting to children, judges submitting to criminals, doctors submitting to patients, and so on and so on. It's incoherent. It makes no sense. In contemporary thought, The husband and wife relationship is something that is molded and shaped exclusively, solely, and totally by societal norms. That's it. And so whatever society you're in, that's where the norms are. But the Bible doesn't say that. So there there is truth to that. I'm not denying that. But what I'm saying is that the Bible says that there is more to that. And in fact... It witnesses to creation. When God created man and then woman. What's even more striking here is that the Apostle Paul ultimately connects it to redemption. And he tells the husband and the wife, you don't exist for one another. Not exclusively. You are in fact an embodied witness to the relationship of Jesus Christ and the church. So therefore, right, it applies equally, as we learn in other texts, to Jews or to Greeks or to rich or to poor or to ancient or to today. But it's not only those things, right? It's not only locked into society. This is transcendent truth bearing witness to creation as well as redemption. Now let me, a couple of asides. I, I, I need to take just a, a, a little asides, not, not, not big ones. But understand that what I'm talking about here, what the text is saying about this relationship between a wife and a husband and this concept of submission has nothing to do with the workplace. It has nothing to do with the dating relationship. Girlfriends, you do not need to submit to boyfriends. I'm telling you, this is a husband thing. This is a wife thing. This is a biblical thing. It's not a male thing. It's a husband thing. Husbands are males, but it's not a it's not a male thing, right? You can own your voice. I mean, you can own your voice in a relationship too. Husbands and wives. I'll talk about that here in a minute. But that's what it's not saying. I mean, and it's also something uh, as well. It's not to do with giftedness either. (laughs) Many, many men will easily, readily acknowledge that their wives are more gifted than they are. No problem. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It comes down to the roles that God has given us to fulfill the purpose that we have in marriage. This is an important attachment to that. So second, it does not mean that the wife is unequal. I think that's probably one of the biggest 
misunderstandings about this whole thing at all. The notion is that somehow role or function equals inequality or not being equal. Uh, and that's just not true. It's not true, and it's easily, easily provable. In fact, John 13, Jesus does something. He takes a towel, and he washes the disciples' feet. He took the place of a servant. In fact, he said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to, in another word, submit to everyone. You have to have this notion here. Was he less than the disciples because he served them? No. In fact, that was a demonstration of strength. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This doesn't equal in any way unequalness, inequality, whatever word you might choose to use. Fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours, thy will be done. Jesus submitted his will to the Father. Were they unequal? Because he was in the role that he had as the Son? Never. Not at all. Jesus and the Father are equal. Roles and function do not equate to being unequal. Get that. If that's a residue in your mind, please, biblically, that's not true. Third, submission doesn't mean that the wife always has to agree with the husband. Now, you all know that at a practical level, that that's, if you're married, you know that. If you're a child and watching your parents, you know that. So this is something that we all know. Uh, but Acts 5 tells us this, and it's an interesting thing. I draw a parallel. It's not a, direct, it's not a direct connect, but it's direct enough that Peter and the apostles were preaching the gospel, and the authorities came and said, yeah, stop it. And so I don't know how much thought it took, probably not too much, but Peter says, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. We must obey God rather than men. We must. We must. It's not an option. If your husband is forcing you to go against the Bible, then you have to understand that your first obligation is to God. Fourth, it does not mean that a wife does not have influence over her husband. I love this. One of the earliest phrases I learned, uh, Proverbs that I learned in the Middle East in Arabic was, uh, the man is the head of the house. And they'll say it with great aplomb. But the woman is the neck that turns the head. <laughs> I mean, in 1 Peter 3, 1, he actually uh, says something interesting. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, that they may be one without a word by the conduct. Right? That's the very definition of influence. If you can win somebody to Jesus Christ, you are influencing their life here and for eternity. And finally, and, and this is a, you know, I've hit a few sensitive things. This one is sensitive as well. It doesn't mean that the wife should ever live in fear of her husband. 
1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Abuse has no admission sticker for the poor or the needy. It cuts across all socioeconomic levels, all educational levels, and yes, even in the church. Submission never, ever for a child, a parent, or anyone else means that they need to live in fear. So the biblical teaching on marital submission in no way violates equality of humanity, of our standing before God, of our talents and gifts and abilities, none of those things in our standing with Christ, most certainly. And only the most immature men would, in Ephesians 5, produce glee. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, uh, and, and it's quite simple. What it should produce, I'll tell you what it should produce, fear and trembling, that's what it should produce. Do you know why? Headship. What, what does headship look like uh, on the part of the husband here in the text? Because it's, it's clear, crystal clear, that this is talking about self-sacrificing love, even to death. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, as if he had to add that second part, as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? We just celebrated that today. He gave himself for her. And I remind you, and I need to remind you, and sometimes I literally have to remind men of this, that he gave himself up for a church that did not submit to him, that did not even love him. In fact, the scripture says that scorned him. Wanted no part of him. When I give the vows, they mean something. They mean something. You see, men, husbands, this is how Christ loved you. There's not one of us in here, and if you do think this way, please speak with me because it's bad theology. There's not one of us in here who was not in rebellion to God. There is not one of us in here, not one of us in here who was not dead in their trespasses and their sins. And yet in that state, Jesus Christ willingly, joyfully, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, endured the shame so that you and I might have life. We are called to lovingly give up our very lives. We're called to sacrifice and endurance. And that's expressed in servant leadership, motivated by love and care and compassion. And aside from the preaching and teaching of the Word, I would say that the most practical dynamic that offers the most impact in the life of the church and the health of the church is how well husbands sacrificially love their wives. I want to say 
but there's a lot of things I would I, I would like to say, but I, I do want to say one other thing, men. Loving your wives can also keep you human. <laughs> they may sound strange. And I'll, I'll give somewhat of a, I guess, you know, if you're tuning the stereo, you tune it one way and then the other to finally find the balance. So, you know, this may be somewhat out of balance for most of us, but the point remains true. One of my trips into... Iraq and to Baghdad, I was able to speak at length with a, a Navy SEAL who was on his eighth combat deployment, and he was talking to me about some of the dehumanizing aspects of war. So like, you know, the Navy SEAL that shot... Uh, bin Laden it wasn't him but you know why he got out you know why he got out early it was because the last time he killed a guy he might as well have been eating some Cheetos he didn't feel a thing and he said man <laughs> he said if I don't get out I'm going to lose I'm going to lose whatever humanity I have left. And he had just enough humanity to do that. And I, and I asked him, I said, how do you stay alive? And he knew I wasn't talking about bullets. He knew I wasn't talking about bombs. He knew I was talking about his spirit, his mind, his, his heart. And he said this, simple, and I, you know, of course, I'm thinking, simple. Wow. He said, you know, I have to log into my computer 10, 15 times a day. And my password is, I love my wife, and I love my son. And that reminds me that I'm a husband and a father and that keeps me human. And so it is that ever so briefly we have touched on the major themes of this passage. It is a requirement for us as followers of Christ, to walk worthy of our calling. And our society is going to tell you that you are all wrong. But the Word of God will tell you, and the Spirit of God will tell you in your heart that you are all right. And so now, as we go from this place, let us walk worthy of our calling in Jesus Christ. Father, I 
uh, just stand before you in awe that you can take the brokenness of who we are and make something of beauty out of it. It's all you. I, we get that. All of us, we get that. But that you do it, that you had the desire to do it in your heart from eternity past, I don't get that. But I do respond to it with love and care. And Lord, we, we want to honor you in all that we do. And we pray that we can do that in whatever our role, whatever our function, whatever our place in this life through the power of your Spirit, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.